Well, happy Sunday to you. Happy Lord's Day. It's good to be here, um, and it is sweet to celebrate together as a church family the arrival of these new lives and to pray for new parents and to pray for the important work of parenting that lies ahead, to pray for the Lord's blessing on it. That's a sweet thing to get to do. And now we get to turn to a rather grotesque passage of Scripture. A passage of Scripture that involves a head on a platter. If you're too familiar with the story of John the Baptist, you might miss how grotesque this really is. It's grotesque in Shakespearean proportions. Why is there a story about a head on a platter in the gospel of Jesus Christ? We've been studying through the book of Matthew together as a church and um, week after week. I just keep reminding us, why are we doing Matthew's gospel? Because of Jesus. Because it tells us about Jesus and it tells us what it means to be disciples who follow Jesus and what it means to make disciples who follow Jesus. And passage after passage, we've seen Jesus, but there's something unique about this passage here in Matthew chapter 14. It says less about Jesus than any, or it has less to do with Jesus than any other paragraph in Matthew's gospel. Every other paragraph in Matthew's gospel tells us something about the arrival of Jesus. It tells us something about the ministry of Jesus. It tells us something about the teaching of Jesus. It tells us something perhaps about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But right here in the middle of Matthew's gospel, we've got this grotesque passage that is only, we might say, tangentially connected with the life and ministry of and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is this here in our Bibles? And I think, as we'll see as we dig in, it's here in our Bibles in large part because it helps us answer an important question related to following Jesus. It helps us answer this question, what does it mean to follow Jesus in a world gone wild? What does it mean to live as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven in a world that's gone crazy? And the main way that this passage speaks to us is through a contrast of two characters. One of them we might call a heartless king, and the other we might call a headless prophet. And in the contrast of these two characters, we learn something important about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in a world that has gone crazy. Let's pay attention to each of these characters for a couple of minutes and think about what their story means for us. We begin with the heartless king. And it might help to do just a little bit of history here to put some of the pieces together and figure out what's going on. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 1, we read that 
This has to do with the time of Herod the Tetrarch. And the modern translation of that might be to say we're not talking about the same Herod that we read about in Matthew chapter 2, that evil king who ordered the execution of all Jewish children two years old and under as a vain attempt to destroy the life of Jesus before it got going. That was a different Herod, and in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, we learned that that Herod, who is known in history as Herod the Great, but who might better be called Herod the Monster, we learn in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, that Herod the Great is dead. This is not Herod the Great or Herod the Monster. This is Herod Jr. This is Herod's son, known as Herod the Tetrarch. He's a wealthy individual with a little bit of power, maybe like some of the royals in the British royal family these days, royal royals who are famous and wealthy but not exactly very powerful. He has enough power to get somebody thrown in prison, but he doesn't have all that much more power beyond that. He's Herod's, a local ruler. And the story has its intrigue Because of this fling that has just recently begun between Herod Jr. and Philip's wife Herodias. That's interesting because Philip is a half-brother of Herod Jr. And so what happens in a story behind the story, what happens in a story that we don't fully know about, is at some point Herod Jr. goes to visit his brother, his half-brother Philip, and he starts flirting with his half-brother Philip's wife. And that flirting leads from one thing to another, and sooner rather than later, Herod Jr., and Herodias are plotting together how they can each divorce their current spouses so they can hook up and shack up and end up hitched. You know Jesus' teaching about whoever whoever marries a divorced woman is committing adultery? In a way, this story was the current event Behind Jesus' teachings on such things. It's not to say in Jesus' view of divorce that every single kind of divorce is inherently sinful. But what Jesus in his teaching is putting a spotlight on is this issue that in some circumstances divorce is just a cover for adultery. As it clearly was in the case of Herod Jr., And Herodias. What begins as kind of a fling between two wealthy individuals leads to a divorce and a new marriage, and Herodias moving in with Herod in his place of rulership over in Galilee. But what begins with kind of what might appear to be a fun idea for a wealthy couple 
turns quickly into something else. Do you notice the emotions that are underneath the surface of this passage? Right away, we read at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14 that when Herod hears about Jesus, his response to hearing about the miraculous powers of Jesus are to say, oh no, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Isn't this kind of the musing of a guilty conscience? And so the story rewinds a little bit and it tells us how Herod Jr. had put John in prison. Why? Because John the Baptist kept saying, it's unlawful for you to be hooking up, shacking up and getting hitched with your brother's wife. It's worth pausing for a second to consider in whose court was that unlawful? Not necessarily unlawful in a Roman court. In whose court is that unlawful? According to the law of Moses and according to the clear teaching of Jesus is unlawful in the Lord's view of things. However legal it is in a Roman court system. And so what we have in John's critique of Herod Jr. is not so much John saying you need to be removed from office based on Roman precedent. What we have is John saying whether or not you can do that in Rome, you can't do that in Rome and say that you're living in a way that is consistent with the law of God. And this leads Herod Jr. to want to put Herod or want to put John the Baptist to death, according to verse five. But why can't he? Because he's afraid of people. Because he fears the opinion of people. The book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of man, the fear of people lays a snare for us. And as we read about this story of Herod Jr., we kind of feel him getting trapped, ensnared more and more. What began as just kind of a little bit of self-indulgence now has him trapped. I want to kill this guy, but I can't. There are things in his life that are not working out together. This guilty conscience, this fear of people are not the end of it. We now read in verse 6 about his birthday party. And during his birthday party, he finds himself perhaps lustfully watching his new daughter-in-law. Is that how you say that? Not daughter-in-law. Stepdaughter. And he makes an oath to her. I'll give you whatever you want. She asks for the death of of this prophet who keeps saying that it is unlawful in God's court for her mom and her stepfather to be married. And so in verse 9, look there with me if you would. It says, The king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, 
He commanded it to be given. Have you ever had a verse 9 moment in your life? This isn't exactly what I want to do. And I'm already sorry that I'm doing it. But I'm in a stream of events that leads me to just feel trapped into continuing on down this road, even if it's leading me into doing things I don't want to do. You see, this little bit of self-indulgence that began with flirting with his brother's wife now has him entangled in a murderous plot. One thing keeps leading deeper and deeper. And finally, here he is, drunk at his birthday party, lusting after his stepdaughter, ordering that the next course to be delivered would be a human head. And I don't know, I mean, sometimes when people are really drunk, Things seem funny that aren't funny. But even if this all seemed like a really funny joke in the moment, the next morning somebody had to wake up and say, what in the world is that smell? And Somebody had to walk out and find a human head decaying at the table they were eating and getting drunk at last night. You see, what began with just a little bit of immorality has grown chains. What began with just a little bit of immorality has become enslaving for Herod Jr. In other words, there's a little bit of a warning for us in the example of Herod Jr., And the warning goes something like this. Self-indulgent immorality is more dangerous than you might guess. Herod Jr. came from a family of rulers who liked to claim some connection with the people of God. At least when it was convenient. Herod Jr.'s great-grandmother had been Jewish, and since he and other Herods ruled in places where a lot of Jewish people lived, from time to time, when it was politically convenient, they liked to pull out their Jewish card and say, yeah, we serve the Lord too. My great-grandma, she's a part of this thing. But how do we know that Herod Jr. is not serving the Lord with integrity? How do we know that Herod Jr. is a false king sitting in the land of Galilee? We know it by his lifestyle of self-indulgent immorality that is growing chains with the shackles clanking tighter and tighter and tighter and leading him from a little bit of flirting To a dead man's head on a platter at his birthday party. You see, the story of 
Herod Jr. is a story that begins with a little bit of flirting, a little bit of self-indulgence, a little bit of immorality. And it ends with fear and guilt in his heart, blood on his hands, and a head on a platter. And in his fears about Jesus, I think Herod Jr. actually saw more than even he realized. In Herod's guilty fears about Jesus as a back-from-the-dead kind of prophet, I think he's seeing something far more serious than even he realizes. Because Jesus is not just a back-from-the-dead kind of prophet here to amplify the warnings that John the Baptist had been ringing out. Repent now because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is not just a back-from-the-dead prophet to keep ringing out these warnings. One day, it will be seen that Jesus is a back-from-the-dead judge. Who will return to judge all of the living and all of the dead with all insight and all knowledge and all truth and all justice. And on that day, when the back from the dead judge comes to judge the living and the dead, only then would the real consequences of Herod Jr.'s actions be truly felt and understood. You see, apart from repentance, without turning his life around and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Herod Jr. is on a train that's heading toward a destination even worse than guilty fears, even worse than a guilty heart, even worse than blood on his hands, even worse than a head on a platter at his birthday party. He's heading toward a day when he will have to give an account of his own life to the judge who has conquered the grave and will one day judge all in truth. Which is why our Lord Jesus Christ asks questions like this. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world All the wealth of a royal. All the prestige of everybody else giving you whatever you want. His ability to steal the wife he longs for from his own brother. What will it profit a man if he is able to gain the whole world and yet in the end 
forfeits his soul. The first character that this passage shows us is what we might call a hard-hearted or even a heartless king. A king who has indulged in a little bit of self-indulgence and immorality, which has put him on a train headed toward a destination, a day of judgment before a back-from-the-dead judge, King Jesus. That's the first character this passage puts in front of us. The second character that this passage puts in front of us is the headless prophet. This passage tells us about how the life of John the Baptist ended. And if we've read this far through Matthew's Gospel, we know that John the Baptist is a pretty good dude. In fact, in many ways, John the Baptist stands at the end of a long line of great figures throughout the Scriptures. The end of a long line of great, but not perfect, but great figures that we call the prophets. Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, Amos, and Obadiah, and on and on. And along comes the great prophet Elijah to proclaim To the whole world, make straight the way of the Lord who is returning. And as we read in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel and in John's gospel, this fellow named John the Baptist, he fulfills his prophetic ministry with deep kingdom integrity. He calls people to repent and return to the king because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he sees Jesus, he calls him out as one who is unmet, who is immeasurably greater than him. One John the Baptist would say, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to tie. John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold, that man is the Lamb of God who has come to take away The sins of the world. Good news for sinful people like you and me. And what's the application point of John's message as he identifies the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world? The application point is this. Repent. Turn around in submission. Turn around and yield your life. Surrender your life to the kingdom of heaven. Because it is at hand. John the Baptist has fulfilled a faithful ministry up to this point in Matthew's Gospel. And what is his reward? His head ends up on a platter. Which puts in front of us kind of an interesting situation. If on the one hand, the story of the heartless king warns us 
that immorality is more dangerous than we might guess. It's interesting that also the story of the heart, the headless prophet also reminds us that integrity might be more dangerous than we would expect. Neither path is all smooth sailing and safe. According to Matthew chapter 15, excuse me, Matthew chapter 40, according to Matthew chapter 14, kingdom integrity is more dangerous than you might guess. Why? Because it is often politically inconvenient and personally costly. Here's John the Baptist saying to anybody who will listen, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's a political leader who, when convenient, likes to claim associations with God's people. And people are all abuzz about his latest relationship. John the Baptist says, that's not lawful. Not in God's judgment. So much so that it lands him in prison. And it ends up in his decapitation. Kingdom integrity is more dangerous than we might guess. And that's still true today, isn't it? I've been alive just long enough to remember that John's example motivated a number of American Christians to criticize the sexual immorality of Bill Clinton several decades ago. And the example of John the Baptist has also motivated some American Christians to criticize the sexual immorality of Donald Trump more recently. And I think there is some appropriate application there. What's perplexing is that sometimes those two circles don't overlap a lot. Because sometimes we're more eager to criticize those in power only in order to support a certain political agenda that we're interested in. We're more interested in that than we are in representing the integrity and the message of the kingdom of heaven even when it's politically inconvenient for me. In a way, sometimes, even when we criticize those in leadership, we find our criticisms a little bit more like the way that Herod used the Lord. When it's convenient, I'll invoke his name. As opposed to criticisms that grow out of a life of ongoing integrity, a life of kingdom integrity that says, 
whether the person in power is someone that I would have preferred to vote for or not. Immorality is not lawful before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kingdom integrity is more dangerous than we might guess even in our day and still sometimes for political reasons. Calling out immorality among leaders in our world might lead us to be at odds with people that otherwise we'd love to link arms with. It might lead to worse. In fact, sometimes kingdom integrity is not only politically inconvenient, sometimes it's personally costly. And while I don't think any of us have done time in prison or been threatened with beheading, I think even young people in this church are aware of the feeling that we can sometimes have If I walk around and tell people about the kind of ethics that Jesus teaches, that might cost me something. If I don't just laugh at all of the jokes that my friends are laughing at, it might feel a little bit costly to me. And so whether... You're a young person considering the claims of Jesus and not even sure how you feel about following Jesus? Or whether you've been following the Lord Jesus Christ for several decades now. The example of John the Baptist puts in front of us an important challenge. We need to decide now in advance that it is worth it To serve and represent King Jesus even when it proves politically inconvenient or personally costly. We need to decide that now in advance. And what will help us live lives of that kind of kingdom courage? That kind of kingdom conviction? What will cause us to live like people of what, what will cause us to live like that? In part, we need to be warned that this is where kingdom integrity sometimes leads. But we also need to hear this with an echo of the promises of Jesus. The promises of Jesus that sound something like this. Blessed are you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And listen, this is why we need to listen to the Beatitudes carefully. Because when we are actually persecuted, it does not feel like being blessed. When it's politically inconvenient, it doesn't feel like I got the wind in my sails right now. When it's personally costly in friendships and relationships, it doesn't feel like, oh, this is the blessing that was promised. But that's where we need to get the gears in our hearts connected in with the promises of Jesus Christ. 
so that the power of his promises and the power of the hope that we have in Jesus is able to move us forward even through persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, even if it is falsely on my account. In fact, Jesus says, you can, in a sense, rejoice and be glad, knowing that your reward is great in heaven because so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we need to decide in advance that kingdom integrity is to be preferred even if it proves politically inconvenient or personally costly. And in fact, here's the connection that this tangential passage does have with the life of Jesus Christ. It's not just that John was the last of a great line of prophetic voices who found themselves politically on the margins or personally paying a cost for representing the kingdom of heaven and its values in a world gone wild. It's not just that he was the last in a line of great prophets looking forward to Jesus. No, John the Baptist and his experience in this world foreshadow what will happen to Jesus himself. Which is why when his disciples discover in verse 12 that John is dead, they go and they bury the body of John and they don't just say all hope is lost. Where do you go when great leaders who you have respected or who have influenced your life or who have helped you move forward are gone? Like the followers of John the Baptist, we too are invited to come back to Jesus himself in our grief, in our loss, in our sorrow, in our confusion, in the pain of that moment thinking, how could such a horrific thing happen to somebody who served the Lord so faithfully? We too are invited like the disciples of John the Baptist to come to Jesus in our grief and our perplexity with all of our questions. And in Him and in His face, To find the promises of somebody who not only says, that's what happened to all the prophets back then, and that's what happened to John the Baptist, so you go try it next. And we hear the precious promises of one who finds himself, not just as one of many in that line, but we find in his face... drops of sweat like blood... The eyes of sorrow. Scars with a crown of thorns was pressed into his skull as he suffered not because of his own sins, 
but for us and for our salvation. You see, the life of John the Baptist reminds us, it tells us, that John, like the prophets before him, and like Jesus after him, He was willing to stand for kingdom integrity even when that was politically inconvenient or deeply, personally costly. In fact, even to the point of death. And yet even then, it was worth it. See, here's the core issue that this bloody passage puts in front of us. You want to know what's at the the heart of this disturbing story, this contrast of two characters, a heartless king and a headless prophet, you know what's at the core of it? What's at the core of it is this, to say it in Jesus' own words, whoever would save his own life in the end will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Isn't it interesting that our Lord Jesus Christ does not talk about finding that which is truly life and say, don't bother. No, our Lord Jesus Christ speaks about the search for that which is truly life. And he says, I want you to find it. You've just been looking in the wrong places. If you seek to save what you believe is life by simply indulging your own desires wherever they may lead, you're going to find yourself ensnared and trapped and guilty and fearful and on a path toward, toward standing before the judgment seat of our back from the dead Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But if on the other hand... You willingly surrender your life to Jesus Christ and begin that path of following Him, whatever it may cost. Listen, it will still be dangerous. Don't hear any false promises from me that it will all be easy. But it will be worth it. And in that pathway, whoever loses his life for my sake will find what we have been searching for. The core of this passage is a contrast of two characters. On the one hand, one who gives himself to his own desires and ends up in guilt and fear on a path toward judgment. And the other who devotes his life to kingdom integrity and finds himself on a path toward that which is eternal life. With the words of Jesus stamped in blood over his head, blessed for your reward will be great in heaven. In a certain kind of way, John the Baptist does stand at the end of a long line of prophetic voices that we're looking forward. And what do we do with this passage as we see this contrast and this invitation to run to Jesus, to follow him in order that we might find that which is truly life? 
But we need to be warned about the danger of following the opposite path. We need to be warned also of the danger of following him. And we need to know that it's worth it. In fact, the end of the book of Hebrews has this beautiful passage in it that we sometimes call the hall of faith, kind of like a hall of fame. I know it's cheesy, but, you know, it's what we call it sometimes. Hebrews chapter 11. And it speaks of many voices that came before John the Baptist. And it speaks of them like this. It says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. And if we're thinking of John the Baptist, some of them went about in skins of camels with a leather belt, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and ended up with their head on a platter. But... They went about in skins of sheep and goats and camel hair, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, people of whom this world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive The full delivery of what was promised. Why? Because God had provided something better for us. (laughs) That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And in light of that, what should we do? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Brothers and sisters, I want to recruit you into the kingdom of heaven as well. Not because it's safe and easy. It's dangerous. But because it's worth it. And how? What does it mean to enter the kingdom of heaven? Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight... And let us lay aside sin which clings so closely. And then let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking the whole time toward Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame And is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted.
Here's my invitation to you today. Come and join the kingdom of heaven. And decide now that you want to live a life of kingdom integrity, no matter how costly that may prove. Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he says, whoever would preserve his own life, you're just going to lose it. But when you turn and begin seeking it in the right place in him, whoever is willing to lose his life for my sake, he will lose.